the book of Revelation, chapter 7 this morning. Sunday morning, studying the book of Revelation together. And as we're finding our way there, just a reminder that on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently studying the next to last book in the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. We'll continue that this evening, and each of you are invited. And uh, let's pick things up in chapter 7. You might just um, turn a few pages to the right and to chapter 14. We'll read uh, five verses out of 14 as well in Revelation. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, uh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And so he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night at his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them, and they shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them uh, nor any heat, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Chapter 14. And then I looked, and behold... Uh, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of a loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang as it were a new song before the throne. 
before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. And these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for your love for us, even as we sang in a couple of the worship songs here today, and the realization of what you left to come and uh, send your Son to come and to die for our sins, and uh, to say nothing of the cross and all that he went through there. We thank you for your love for us. We sure love you, and growing in that all the time, and We pray that you would open up your word to us, help us to understand you and your ways a little bit better, fall more deeply in love with you, Lord, and that an even greater worship might flow from our hearts and then from our lips toward you, for you are certainly worthy. And we pray and we ask for this work of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Chapter 7 in this book of Revelation constitutes what is known as a parenthetical statement. That is, it is used as an opportunity to kind of fill in some blanks in uh, the account that, uh, that are moving forward before us here as we go through the book of, of Revelation. These parenthetical statements, there's more than one that are here, are given in order to just slow down the progression of the events, explain some things to us so that we can fully understand what God is saying and what God is doing and uh, not misunderstand what it is uh, that, that He's doing. It's kind of the same thing that we run into when you would read a novel or you might watch a, a, a movie. Uh, the plot is unfolding. They know we have a limited attention span, and so boom, 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 you've got to arrest people's attention, and, and then the exciting events begin to pile one upon the other, and then the movie will slow down. There'll be a flashback of some kind, or there'll be some character development related to the characters in order that we might understand uh, who's involved in this, what, uh, what is kind of the, the subplot that is happening here to help us to understand the, the, the greater uh, plot and what, it, what is happening. And without these kind of pauses in literature or pauses in cinema and the movie, if it just ran blasted right through with just exciting kind of, uh, of events, we uh, might not understand, and certainly related to the book of Revelation, would not understand uh, the, what all of those events and, and, uh, that are, are unfolding uh, actually uh, represent. Six of the seven uh, sealed judgments have gone forth in chapter 6. Uh, The trumpet judgments are going to commence in chapter 8. But there's another activity that is happening in the world at that time of the tribulation that's vital for us to understand. And if we do not understand it, 
then we will completely misunderstand what God is doing in the world during the tribulation uh, period. And of course, the last thing that God wants us to do in a book that is entitled The Revelation, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, is to somehow be obscure in what it is that he's saying and he's communicating so that we would then uh, end up misjudging what it is that he is saying. So these parenthetical statements make it just absolutely uh, boneheaded, I'm referring to myself, boneheaded clear so that you can't, you can't, can't mis, misunderstand it. In chapter 7, the Holy Spirit draws our attention here to two uh, groups of people who are going to turn to Jesus Christ for salvation during the tribulation period. The first group is known as the 144,000, and the second group, in verse 7, is this uncountable number of both Jews and Gentiles who will become Christians during the tribulation period, out of every tribe and out of every nation, out of every peoples and out of every tongues. I think that sometimes people can wonder, uh, related to all of this and studying the book of Revelation, will anyone uh, be saved during the tribulation period? And chapter 7 is the answer uh, to that question. Now, I want to begin with the activities of these four angels in verses 1 through 3 because they set the context for understanding uh, everything else. The activities of these four angels are restrained until the sealing of the 144,000. They stand at the four corners uh, of the earth, we're told in verse 1. They're holding the wind. Uh, No wind is going to blow during this uh, period upon Uh, upon the earth, and so very fascinating to look all the way through the book of Revelation, the the power of these angels. Here these four angels uh, cause uh, the wind to cease to blow. I would imagine the world will get very, very hot and very, very smoggy in short short order. The winds uh, probably also speak of the future storm of judgment that's about to come on the earth in, in chapter uh, 8 in the form of the trumpet judgments. And so uh, the, the, this pause for the sealing of the 144,000 kind of represents the proverbial calm before that storm. Now a lot of people, some people make a, a big deal out of the language that is used in Revelation uh, chapter 7 verse 1 where the earth is spoken of as having four corners. And so, as if Christians don't know that, and as if God doesn't know that, and as if God is, as if God is advancing a flat earth uh, a kind of understanding of the world, or the world is not a sphere, but it is a cube of some kind. Um, but uh, it's nothing of the sort. In the ancient world, and even today, when we talk about the four corners of the world, we're talking about the four directions of the world, north, south, east, and west. Everybody understands that it's a saying that speaks of the entirety of the world. It is interesting to realize, in terms of when did man and human history come to realize uh, absolutely, independently of the Bible, absolutely that the world is, it, uh, was not flat, but is in fact round. 
and that's credited to the Greeks at about 2300 uh, years ago with their mathematical formulas and the different things that they did they discovered that the earth is not flat but it is uh, round interestingly Isaiah writes several hundred years uh, before the Greeks ever discovered it in his prophecy 740 BC uh, and uh, clearly states that God sits above the circle of the earth and so uh, kind of a foolish accusation to bring against uh, the Bible and and, and certainly an, an ignorant one now another angel comes on the scene in verses 2 and 3 he uh, appears ascending from the east that is from the rising of the sun he has the seal of God he has a seal with which he is going to seal uh, the 144,000 he cries out to the four angels in verse 3 don't harm anything until the servants of God are sealed on their foreheads and then at that point he proceeds to seal them which then sets the stage for uh, a fuller consideration of the 144,000 themselves. We're told in verse 4 that they are uh, sealed. In uh, chapter 14 of Revelation, in, in verse 1, as we read it, strongly uh, indicates that this seal is the name of God the Father that is written on their foreheads. I'll read it again. Chapter 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000, having his Father's name uh, written on uh, their uh, foreheads and as we use the Old Testament to interpret the book of Revelation which we're encouraged uh, to do to be on safe ground certain this, certainly the sealing of the 144,000 brings to mind an episode in Ezekiel uh, chapter 9 in the Old Testament where God ex instructed a man who had an ink horn uh, to place a mark on the forehead of all of the righteous within Jerusalem who were troubled uh, over the sins of Jerusalem in order to protect them from a judgment uh, of God that was to come upon the city. And so this seal is a mark of God's ownership. It protects the 144,000 uh, from the ensuing judgments that will occur uh, during the Great Tribulation until their ministry is over, after which we find them triumphant uh, in heaven uh, in, in uh, uh, chapter 14 uh, of verse 3 here in the Revelation. Now, because they are sealed during the Tribulation period, they cannot be church-age Christians. Uh, they cannot be before the rapture Christians. Because church-age Christians, that is us, uh, we are already sealed. And we are already sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Now, I would contend that because they are described later in chapter 14 as we've read, described as being redeemed, 
as uh, those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, that these are uh, definitely an indication of their salvation and their faith in, in Christ, that they are saved during the tribulation period because they are described in that passage as well as being the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. They are the first fruits of salvation of a very, very large number of Jews and Gentiles who are going to be saved during the tribulation period, and, um, and these 144,000 are selected from among a larger group of Jews uh, who will be saved during the great tribulation as special servants of God for His purposes through the tribulation. And that's spoken of there in verse 3 of, of chapter 7. I don't doubt that at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period, when the abomination that causes desolation occurs, that is, the Antichrist allows the Jews to rebuild their temple, they rebuild it. At, the, at that mark, uh, one day he wakes up in the morning, he heads down to the temple, and he walks into the Holy of Holies, a, a place that is set aside entirely to God. Uh, in, in terms of the Bible and, and in terms of Jewish thinking, and he sits down in the Holy of Holies, he declares himself to be God, and he demands to be worshipped as God. And at that moment, the Jews will realize that they have been deceived by this, uh, by this man, and, uh, and I think a large number of them will realize that Jesus is their Messiah. They'll come to trust in Him for salvation as a result. And so uh, these are special servants or witnesses of God in the uh, same category as the two witnesses, which we'll talk about later in, in chapter 11. And the two witnesses prophesy on behalf of God during the tribulation, uh, three and a half years uh, of, of the tribulation, and, uh, and they prophesy from Jerusalem, uh, doubtless denouncing the sin of the world, calling on uh, men and women to repent and to put their faith in, in Jesus Christ for salvation. And, and while we're not explicitly told here that their ministry involves the sharing uh, of the gospel with the lost during the tribulation, it does seem to be the strong implication of it by virtue of, of the Holy Spirit, uh, His close association of the 144,000 in chapter 7 uh, with this great multitude who will get saved during uh, the tribulation in kind of abutting both of these groups in the same chapter here in chapter 7. It does appear that they're a part of uh, Jesus' teaching concerning uh, the preaching of the gospel during the tribulation. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, another question that somebody uh, might uh, come up with in all of this is, would be, well, after the rapture of the church, after the removal of all Christians from the face of uh, 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 of the planet, how will people hear the gospel then in order to be saved? Since we're the main conduit for the gospel being taken out into the world by virtue of, of, of the Great Commission. 
Following the rapture, again, I have no doubt that there will be many, many people who will have been raised in church. They have been raised on uh, what the Bible says about end times, raised upon the doctrine uh, of the rapture, not take it seriously or not take a relationship with God seriously. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, or maybe they've heard it from a friend or they've heard it from a family member, something like that. And then uh, uh, once the rapture occurs, they're going to realize that this is true. They are now in the tribulation period. Things get very, very difficult at this point. They need to get right with God and to trust in Jesus. Additionally, um, an angel, we're told, is going to deliver the gospel to the entire world during the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. And then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him who has made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Again, the two witnesses will be prophesying for God uh, for three and a half uh, years. Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, and then you have this 144,000, like uh, unleashing 144,000 Apostle Pauls upon uh, the earth on top of all of these other witnesses and uh, uh, communicating the gospel as well. A further description of the 144,000, of who they are and what they are, is given to us in verses 4 uh, through 8. Again, they number 144,000. They are clearly Jews. The 144,000 are made up of 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and uh, even as I read it through the passage, you say, well, why can't he just say the names? I mean, it's just the repetition on it. Um, number one, I tend not to do that because this is going to outlive the heavens and the earth, not my reading or anything that I'm going to say. So it's in the Bible. It's worth reading. And, and we're not in a particular hurry either. So, uh, but he, he just lays it down tribe after tribe after tribe after tribe uh, in, in, in the passage so that we will understand unmistakably that they are Jews from these 12 tribes. And he names each one of the tribes as if to head off the very thing that has happened today, and that is to spiritualize the 144,000 and say they are not uh, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, but spiritually they represent the church who is going to go through the, uh, go through the tribulation period, but they will be supernaturally protected during the tribulation uh, period. It just seems that no matter how clear God makes these things in His Word, uh, there's people who <clears throat> will uh, try and make it say something else in order to get it to fill our uh, theological uh, twist. We're told that not only are they Jews, <clears throat> but we're further told in verse uh, chapter 14 that they are both male and also virgins. Revelation 14 verse 4. 
These are the ones who are not defiled with women, that is men, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These are redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And so these are 12,000 Uh, 144,000 male virgin Jews. So unless you are a male virgin Jew who can track your lineage all the way back to one of the 12 tribes of Israel, then you're not qualified to be a part uh, of this group. And who would want to be? When we can be saved and miss all of the uh, difficulty that that they're going to go go through. Now the 144,000 Lots of people do monkey business with it. Uh, Islam uh, uh, does. Uh, uh, Mormons do. Jehovah Witnesses are probably the most uh, uh, egregious in their treatment of it. They declared early in their history that they were the 144,000. Um, and and uh, one of the, pro- the problems they ran into is that that was perfectly fine when their numbers were below 144,000. But once they jumped above that, they had to redefine it as being an elite number among a larger group uh, of Jehovah Witnesses. But, but the passage uh, doesn't teach anything uh, like that at all. Sometimes people will protest that since the official genealogies of the Jews historically were destroyed in the destruction of the temple, Uh, by the Roman general Titus uh, in 70 AD that there's no way to officially identify any Jew with a particular tribe. And so how can 12,000 Jews uh, be identified with each tribe? And the answer is because God knows who is from each tribe independent of official genealogies. So he, there are no, we talk about ten lost tribes of Israel. There are no ten lost tribes uh, with, uh, to him. It is interesting to me that God did allow those official genealogies of the Jews to be destroyed in that destruction of the temple in, in 70 A.D. when the identification of the Messiah in human history is so tied to those genealogies prophetically, that he would be a descendant of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. He would be a descendant of the bloodline of David, that he would come from uh, the tribe of Judah. And today, no Jew could stand up on the face of this earth, declare themselves to be the Messiah on the basis of, of the fulfillment of those prophecies, because there's no means by which to verify their lineage or their tribe. And so why would God give all of these prophecies that speak to the lineage of the Messiah and then allow the lineages to be destroyed in 70 A.D.? And it's because they had, by 70 A.D. they had already done their prophetic work 70 years earlier at the birth of Jesus in identifying Him as Messiah. And after His death, His burial, His resurrection, and His ascension, they were no longer needed. If Jesus is not the Messiah, nobody is the Messiah in, in human history. Now, 
beyond the salvation of the 144,000 during uh, the tribulation, we're introduced then to this great multitude of Jews and Gentiles who are going to end up saved as well. But unlike the 144,000 and the uniqueness of their calling, they will end up being martyred as a result of their faith in Christ. And so, like the 144,000, their salvation will occur as a response to uh, the gospel, trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness uh, of sins. Again, whether it is them remembering uh, the truth about salvation, the truth about the rapture of the church, the truth about the tribulation, sometime in, in their lives before it all occurred, they realize, ah, this is all true, and they, they put their faith in Christ, or whether they heed the angel that preaches the everlasting gospel to the entire world, or whether they come to faith based upon the prophesying and witnessing of the two witnesses or the, or the uh, 144,000, uh, but a great number of people will end up saved during the tribulation period. Now, the removal of the influence of the Holy Spirit through the church and the world today, uh, His influence against corruption and against sin, his influence for being salt and light in the world through our lives as we are indwelt uh, by the Holy Spirit. And in the light of the fact that the church is removed at the time uh, of, of the rapture, and, uh, and, the, and that particular influence of the Holy Spirit is also removed at that time, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, that does not mean that the Holy Spirit will somehow be removed from the world entirely or cease any kind of activity uh, in the world. He couldn't be removed from the world uh, entirely because as God the Holy Spirit, He is omnipresent. It would be physically impossible for Him to, uh, to do that. He will continue during the tribulation period his work of testifying to Jesus and then of convicting people of their sin and then uh, uh, speaking to people of their need to turn to Jesus for salvation. Now, these tribulation saints that, uh, 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 that come to know the Lord during the tribulation they will come out of, you notice in verse 9, every nation, tribe, people, and tongues. And then, like the tribulation saints that we talked about last week in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, uh, because the world will become so hostile to anything that's identified as Christian during the tribulation period under the demonic influence uh, of the Antichrist, they will in large part be martyred for their faithfulness to God's Word and their faithfulness to their identification with Jesus Christ uh, as their Savior in the world. I want you to notice in verse 9 as well that the number of people who will be saved during the tribulation will be a great multitude which no one could number. And uh, this could very well, this harvest of souls during the tribulation could very well represent the greatest uh, spiritual harvest in terms of salvation in human history happening during the tribulation uh, period. 
and, uh, and it will be a very, very large number of people. Now, when the Holy Spirit, or when God takes and He numbers, and He speaks about the number of people that are going to be saved as being a multitude which no one could number, it's not because God can't count. And it's not because He doesn't know how many will be saved. It's, it, 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 it is, uh, he's very, very good at counting. You might remember in the Old Testament, in Second Chronicles, when an, uh, an army came up out of Ethiopia to invade uh, Judah, that he uh, said that it was a million uh, warriors that came up with 300 uh, chariots. Later in the book of Revelation, he's going to talk about an army that's going to come out of the east that numbers 200 million. He knows how to use big numbers. And yet here, in talking about the scope of this harvest, uh, he, wa- he doesn't put a number on it uh, at all, just, I think, speaking to how, uh, uh, and making the point of how large uh, it, it will be. It must be quite a number. Or else uh, he didn't want to give us the number because he knew, knew that some Christian would play games with it, take the number, divide it by 666, and give us the day of the rapture. This is the kind of thing that Christians do with anything God, uh, God gives them. You notice in verses 9 and 10 that they're going to stand before uh, the throne of God the Father and the Lamb. So in in an absolute counter-distinction to the treatment of the world of them, uh, the persecution of them, the martyrdom of them, their reception into heaven is a uh, a glorious reception. They are received and received warmly by none other than God the Father and, and Jesus Himself. Now, here you, have <clears throat> here you have some pretty tough customers uh, coming to know the Lord. I mean, they didn't want anything to do with God before the tribulation period started, and they're in the midst of all that. They come to know the Lord, and then they're brought in, in, into heaven. If there, was, if there was ever any truth to the doctrine of purgatory, that somehow you have to work off whatever you were before you get a chance to get in, these people would be in that place for a long time. And yet it doesn't happen. They're brought straight into the glory of heaven and into the presence of God the Father and the Son. They receive nothing but acceptance in in the glory of heaven. We're told in verse 9 that they're going to be clothed with white robes, In other words, they stand in the perfect righteousness of Christ in that environment. They're going to be holding palm branches. Palm branches were used as a means of expressing celebration in those days. You remember when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They brought out the palm branches. It was a celebration of him uh, as the, the Messiah. They will sing in verse 10 with a loud voice, the idea is wholeheartedly, that salvation belongs to God the Father and to Jesus. And they'll know it. They know it in their own heart, in their own spirit. Now they'll have experienced the fullness of their salvation in the glory of heaven there. And and they declare salvation belongs to our God. They're saved. I mean, they've grabbed hold of God, the God that they wouldn't uh, want anything to do with prior to the tribulation period. Now they call Him our God who sits 
on the throne and, and to, the, to the Lamb. And this just incredible gratitude for their salvation that will mark, uh, mark their lives and, and the relationship that they have with God the Father and with Jesus uh, as a result. Everyone else in heaven then in verse 12, both uh, men and angels that are there, uh, celebrate the salvation of this multitude as well. They begin to just praise God and they thank God for the salvation of this, this multitude. They marvel at the grace of God, that God did not give up on human beings uh, at the moment of the rapture, that he did not cease to try to reach people during the tribulation period. They marvel at the grace of God in, in, uh, in all of this, in the, the uh, representation of these, uh, so many being saved during the tribulation uh, period. That these people, uh, 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 these are people who have become Christians during the tribulation is made clear by the conversation between one of the elders and uh, the Apostle John there in verse, verses 14 through 17, uh, the elder tells, uh, one of the elders tells John, these are the ones who come, uh, verse 14, come out of the great tribulation on the earth and into the glory of uh, heaven. And so uh, what has occurred by virtue uh, of their salvation, verse 14, they washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, they're further clothed with the righteousness of Christ uh, based upon their faith in Him uh, in, in that heavenly scene and, uh, and marked by the forgiveness of sins. And then in verses 15 and 16, the elder informed John further that heaven will now be their eternal portion, and uh, they, they will never again uh, suffer any kind of hardship, any kind of deprivation, uh, the likes of which they had uh, endured upon the earth during the tribulation period. And then on top of that, verse 17, Jesus will now be their shepherd. He will wipe away every tear uh, uh, from their eyes related to what they had endured in identifying with Jesus uh, during the tribulation period. Uh, he will be a shepherd to them, and the idea is that they will be safe with Him forever and ever. He will protect them. And, and in heaven, there will be no grief for our earthly life. All sorrow, anything that would produce sorrow within us is banished in, in heaven. And isn't that wonderful? That's one of the things that make heaven, uh, is going to make heaven heaven. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, let me close with a single application. There's a sense in which, in teaching the book of Revelation, <clears throat> it would be best to teach it all in one setting. From chapter 1 through to chapter uh, 22, without any kind of pauses, so that when the, as you hit these chapter breaks and, and different kind of things, that the kind of break up, up the book, we would not lose in any way the continuity of what is being said. 
But of course, teaching the book of Revelation in one uh, setting on a Sunday morning would be uh, impossible, uh, impractical at the very uh, least. And so we take it chapter by chapter, or we take it passage uh, by, uh, by passage. And none of that is a problem as long as we remember that the entire book collectively uh, it, it provides us with, in the first five words of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It takes all 22 chapters to provide a full and complete revelation uh, of, uh, of Jesus as He is uh, given to us here. In other words, if we studied only Revelation chapter 6, as we did last week, with all of its strong, very, very accurate uh, presentation of the wrath of God, the righteousness of His uh, judgments being poured out upon the earth. While all of that is true, and you wouldn't minimize a single bit of it, it's still only part of the truth. Because chapter 7 reveals to us further details about what God is doing uh, during that tribulation period beyond judgment and beyond the expression of wrath in drawing an innumerable multitude into salvation. Chapters 6 and 7 are absolutely complementary. And this is the importance of parenthetical passages in the book of Revelation, uh, which pause in the progression of the events in order to give us additional insights or the backstory so we can properly follow the progression of events and so we don't come to wrong conclusions about what it is that we're reading. Again, the wrath of the Lamb is not the only thing that is going on during the tribulation period in chapters, Revelation chapters 6 through 19. But during all of that expression of God's wrath and His righteous judgment, God will be endeavoring to save every single human being on the earth at that time. And the result will be one of the greatest harvest of souls, <clears throat> excuse me, in human... <clears throat> be one of the greatest harvest of souls in human history. And in fact, I don't think it would be going too far to say that this expression of His wrath in chapter 6 is vital in preparing the hearts of the multitude to then heed the message of the gospel to accept God's invitation of salvation by trusting in Jesus. They are not contradictory. They are absolutely complementary. And, and uh, the judgments will change their hearts, as in the case when Jesus gave the parable uh, of the soils, and the sower went forth, he sowed the seed, some fell on hard ground, some fell on, on shallow soil, some fell upon uh, soil that was filled with weeds, and, and some fell on, on good soil. So it, it represents human hearts that the gospel comes to. Some people have a hard heart, some people uh, have a, a shallow heart related to spiritual things or receiving the gospel. Others, their lives are too crowded, they don't want anything to do with God by virtue of that, and others receive uh, 
receive it uh, into their life and, and become, uh, become born again. And the gospel takes uh, root and produces fruit uh, within, uh, within their lives. And, and, and I think that it is going to be all of the, the seals and the judgments that are going to move so many people from hard-heartedness, from shallow-heartedness, from crowded-heartedness into having a heart that is finally open to hearing God and uh, heeding His call to salvation and, and trusting in Christ to do that. Oftentimes, for many, many people, you may be one of them, um, uh, getting our fill of sin, getting our fill of idolatry, getting our fill of our own pride is the very means that brings us uh, to God. And God says, go have at it. You think life and meaning and satisfaction is found there? Uh, Go for it. And, uh, and so we do go for it with all kinds of zeal and all, and we discover that there's nothing there. And, and our heart is then prepared to receive the truth of God uh, into our lives. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel had rejected God in large part, all of Israel was uh, dominated. Uh, Judah was dominated by idolatry. And uh, rather than knowing God, worshiping God, loving God, So God says to the southern kingdom of Judah, He says to them in essence, you like idolatry? You like idolatry more than you like me? Uh, You like the wickedness that's associated uh, with idolatry? Fine, you can have it. But you will no longer be able to engage in it and enjoy my blessings at the same time. And I I will give you your fill of it. You want to follow idols? I will send you to idolatry central. I will send you to Babylon for 70 years so you can see what idolatry does to a nation, the culture it produces, the kind of human being that it produces, and that will be the cure to your idolatry and will cause you to turn uh, back to me. And so he did. He sent them there. They got their fill uh, of idolatry and they learned the lesson. It it worked what God was doing. And when the children of Israel returned to their land after seven years, never again, all the way to this day, uh, uh, did they engage in idolatry. Babylon uh, cured them of it. And I think so too related to the tribulation. God will say to the world, You like sin, you like wickedness, you like pride, you like your self-will, fine. Then you will have it. But you will not get to enjoy my blessings while you do. And I will remove my blessings one seal at a time so you can see what the world would become without them and without me, wicked and violent and unrestrained, totalitarian and demonic. And when it becomes that, then many will realize the hard way that only God knew what He was talking about uh, all along in condemning sin, in calling men and women to repentance, and then calling them to trust in Christ for salvation. And in looking at the book of Revelation as a revelation of Jesus uh, above all else, and that's what it is, it's a revelation of, of Jesus, It teaches us here in chapter 7 that his heart 
for the salvation of mankind will not cease at the rapture. It will not cease at the beginning of the tribulation period. But the fact that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance is going to continue into the tribulation period with tremendous results. And during the tribulation period, you are going to have mankind at its worst. You're going to have human beings at their worst, rejecting God, engaging in all kinds of wickedness and lasciviousness without any restraint at all. And yet, even then, the heart of God for the salvation of the sinner continues. Because no matter how rebellious or wicked a person is, no matter how lost or hopeless a person is, no matter what a mess we have made of our lives, no matter what fools we have been in our lives, Jesus will never cease to draw us to himself and his salvation, and then marvel of marvels, embrace us without reservation the moment that we uh, do. And this scene here in Revelation chapter 7 to me is right up there with the thief on the cross uh, as an expression of God's grace and and uh, uh, of Jesus as the lover of our souls. Talk about waiting till the last moment. The whole world waits till the last. This entire harvest is a picture uh, of that thief that came to Christ upon the cross. And yet Jesus continues to try and reach them and bring them into his kingdom. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul wrote from his uh, considerable uh, uh, life experience, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Isn't it wonderful to just stop and to think related to every one of our lives? Not just the people that are going to come to Christ during the tribulation period, but to stop and to realize that God valued our soul long before we ever valued it. We played fast and loose with it, and, and they're going to play fast and, and loose with that. And one of the most humbling things that occurs is when we become a Christian one day and we realize how he valued our souls, valued our salvation when we didn't care anything uh, uh, about it. And then when we became saved, we're humbled and we marvel uh, at how unwilling he was to give up on us, but to continue to try and, and reach us. And God will, Jesus will always do that uh, until it is too late. He will always do it to the last breath of every single human being, both now and in the tribulation period. And I, this chapter 7 just, it, it breaks my head in, in, in some ways. 
you think about the condescension of God here. Think about the sanctified humility and love of God for mankind and for our souls. That man in his rejection and his self-deception of the Antichrist as being the Christ and the engagement of all of that sin when any of us would wipe our hands of the whole world and say enough, the God who is infinitely holier than all of us doesn't do it. And he loves the whole world so much and your soul so much and everybody's soul so much that he says, I'm willing to overlook, endure the blasphemy, the mistreatment that is directed toward me, the rebellion that is directed toward me, and I will not give up on trying to reach them until it is too late for them to be reached at their last breath. The portrait of God the Father and God the Son in Revelation chapter 7 is very, very powerful. What a Savior we have. What a Savior we have. And what a lover of our souls He is. We sing about it, but when we see it represented in this kind of way, how it takes on a new life and a new depth and a new appreciation that we would never otherwise know. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, we're going to be up in front immediately after the service, and we'd love to pray with you to begin the relationship with God that you've been created for and to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to repent of your sin, and begin, be born again and begin the life that God uh, has for you. And that can happen in an instant, no matter what your life is today, no matter where you have been in life. He loves your souls. He values your soul. And He wants to save your soul this morning. We'd love to pray with you to do that. If you need prayer for anything this morning, all of us, these same men and women would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father and Jesus, we are, we are humbled by your grace. We are humbled by your love. What you were willing to follow us into and through in the course of our lives, the blasphemy that our lives can be, the affront that our lives can be to you and have been and are, that you would be willing to overlook all of that in the sense of, uh, of not dismissing our sin, but still fighting and still longing for our salvation, still being willing to make an offer of salvation to mankind and to us that we had disdained for so long and one day a whole world will have disdained and yet you don't give up. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior. Thank you, Father, for sending Him. Thank you for loving our souls way, way before we did.
and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.